of you for coming out on this uh, rather dreary night and I'm glad to see so many folks here. I hope I'm better able to convey my message this evening than Al Smith, the former governor of the state of New York who was visiting an infamous penitentiary in New York, the Sing Sing Penitentiary, and he was asked to uh, make some remarks to the inmates. And so he entered the auditorium and began his remarks, fellow citizens, and a titter of laughter erupted in the crowd, so he became a bit unsettled and thought he'd have another go of it. So this time, in his second effort, he stammered, fellow convicts, which of course brought the laughter to an even higher pitch. And then finally he exclaimed, rather desperately I think, you know what I mean, I'm glad to see so many of you here. Which of course is a particularly apt statement when you consider that the United States of America, among other dubious distinctions, leads Western democracies certainly in the per capita incarceration rates. I'm not going to talk much about that except in the context of a very specific narrow niche, the uh, intersection of terrorism, civil liberties, and capital punishment. It's a true honor to be at the London School this evening. And again, thank you, Professor Chinkin, for that introduction. I'm indebted to the London School, to Amicus for arranging this appearance, to Margot Ravenscroft, our very capable executive director for helping to make this possible. And I'm particularly tickled to be 
actually physically present in the very institution which demonstrated the good sense so many years ago to encourage Mick Jagger to leave school, thus ending his academic inspirations, aspirations and setting him off perhaps on a more appropriate career path. I'll tell you a little bit about myself, uh, what I call my accidental journey toward becoming a death penalty lawyer. In an earlier life, I taught high school. I taught music. And I entered law school with the goal one day of becoming a law professor. I was very fortunate to be able to achieve that dream. And although I became a law professor on purpose, I became a death penalty lawyer almost by accident. My commitment to representing folks on death row, those whose society has deemed unfit to live, began rather by accident while I was working uh, following law school at a, at a large Washington, D.C. law firm called Skadden Arps. I was a young associate making an obscene amount of money, uh, but the firm had a very large pro bono practice, and that's particularly important given that this is pro bono week, the week we're celebrating the provision of legal services to folks who can't afford legal services um, throughout this great country. So as a young litigation associate, though, I was assigned to work on a very large antitrust natural gas pipeline case for one of the firm's very powerful partners. It was a very wealthy client. But I was literally trapped in associate hell. I was mired in document production, reviewing boxes and bankers' boxes after bankers' box full of documents. And I was at grave risk, I think, of developing terminal tendonitis from having to bait stamp or organize these documents and from reviewing mountains, literally mountains of mind-numbingly mundane pages. But suddenly in February of 1988, my luck changed. The partner for whom I had worked on the natural gas case received a phone call from the American Bar Association asking if he would be willing to represent Fred Macias, a prisoner on Texas's death row, who was in dire need of legal assistance. He had an execution date fast approaching, and he had no lawyer to assist him. The partner agreed to take the case and asked if I would join in the effort to save Mr. Macias' life. And I confess that at the time I agreed to work on this death penalty case, I didn't have strong feelings about the death penalty, but I suppose if I had to make a choice, I would have said that I was in favor of capital punishment, sort of an Old Testament eye for an eye, lex talionis kind of notion. If you take a life, you forfeit your life. And I was really keenly interested in getting away from that horrible litigation, that antitrust, uh, where I was spending a great deal of time. So over the next two years while at the firm, I spent some nearly 3,000 no longer billable hours working to secure, to help secure Mr. Macias's freedom. Now as a professor of law at the University of Oklahoma, I'm evaluated as your professors are here, I'm sure, on the basis of teaching and scholarship and public service. And I've always, since joining the law faculty in Oklahoma, worked uh, my service obligations on behalf of folks facing execution or facing capital charges. Uh, I've had the privilege and honor of representing folks throughout the United States in Colorado and Oklahoma, Texas. Uh, this, in recent years, I agreed to represent a number of Guantanamo detainees, and I'll talk more about that this evening. Um, um, Abdenauer Samour was an Algerian army deserter who was granted refugee status by Britain in 1999. It was one of my clients in Amanullah Tuk, an Afghani, who fled the Taliban and landed in Iran where he worked as a taxi driver. Now, Mr. Samour, the British um, refugee, 
uh, was freed from confinement shortly before Christmas last year, largely due to the efforts of an organization that you should be proud of in addition to Amicus, but Reprieve, uh, the premier, one of the premier international human rights organizations based in London. Around the same time, Mr. Took, uh, the Afghani uh, client of mine, was transferred from Guantanamo to Policharki prison, and we were concerned that there he might disappear, but he didn't. He was held for a period of time, and ultimately he too was released. Currently, I have two capital clients. One is an Oklahoma death row prisoner named Scott Eisenberg, who is in the last round of appeals before uh, he will be executed, and he will likely face execution, though I will do everything in my power to prevent that from happening. And another Guantanamo detainee, Ahmed Kailan Gelani, who spent the last four years in Guantanamo in solitary confinement, awaiting not only military commission proceedings at Guantanamo, but he also faces capital uh, charges or death penalty charges up in New York State. And the government has designated Mr. Gailani a high-value detainee, and I'll talk a bit about what that status means here in a little bit as well. I once heard a, a law professor mentor of mine, Michael Tiger, truly a great lawyer, describe his license to practice law as a ticket. And I agree, uh, license to practice law, if properly used, at least where I come from, can entitle the bearer to a front row seat at some of the most compelling dramas known to man, those in which the government, with its virtually unlimited resources, seeks to deprive some hapless creature, whether a murder suspect or an alleged enemy combatant, of either his freedom or his life. Now, on July 1st, 1995, my ticket secured my attendance at the execution of a client of mine, Roger Dale Stafford, and I sat in quiet horror watching Oklahoma state officials poison Roger to death. Two years before that, though, my ticket allowed me to be present to watch another client of mine, Fred Macias, the man whose case I became involved in while working in Washington, D.C., take his first steps as a free man nine and a half years after he was sentenced to death for a pair of murders that he did not commit. Mr. Macias, by the way, was the 50th prisoner uh, exonerated at the time of his release in 1993, the 50th prisoner released since 1973 in the United States on grounds of innocence, exonerated. To date, there have been 130, another 80 prisoners have followed Fred's footsteps off of death row and out from under the shadow of death in the agony of wrongful conviction. Tonight I was going to focus on two topics, but I propose instead to, to spend more time talking about the first, and that, uh, that really will go to the heart of uh, civil liberties and freedom and what I say are America's wars without end, uh, the war on terrorism and the war on crime. I would encourage you to, uh, if you have questions, to feel free to ask them. I will finish up in about an hour's time or so, and we'll have ample opportunity to answer any questions you might have. And I hope I do provoke some questions. But the thesis of the narrowed down topic tonight will be um, my belief that President Bush, who will be leaving office in January, has indeed resurrected the imperial presidency. And I'm told, though I was on a plane traveling to England and didn't see it, that yesterday's New York Times uh, magazine had an article about the imperial president, presidency of George Bush. And by that, I mean that he has jettisoned precious civil rights and damaged America's standing throughout the world. And my pessimistic conclusion tonight is that in a very real sense, the terrorists, aided and abetted by the American government, have won. 
Changes in American law and in American policy have transformed America into a land of the not-so-free and the home of the fearful. Well, let's just spend a moment just reminding ourselves what uh, kind of government we have in, a, in America. It's a bit different from yours, but it is a democracy. And democracy to me means that people ought to be able to vote, as we do for public officials in fair elections, and make most, most political decisions by majority rule. But liberty, something that we hold dear in both of our countries, to me at least, means that even in a democracy, individuals have rights that no majority should be able to take away. Now, I don't know if any of you have followed the uh, election returns in the United States, but we've elected Barack Obama, the first African American to hold that office. And he replaces uh, George W. Bush, who spent eight years occupying the White House. Now, during his victory speech, and I didn't stay up, frankly. I was uh, happy to go to bed after the results were clear. But the very next day, I read Barack Obama's victory speech. And he said, and this is a quote from one of the very first remarks he made to his supporters, if there is anyone out there who still wonders whether the dream of our founders is alive in our time, tonight is your answer. Now, if President-elect Obama meant the framers of the American Constitution when he was talking about the dreams of the founders, my sense is that he couldn't be more incorrect. Whatever dream the framers of the Constitution had, I doubt they could have imagined an African-American man leading our country. I tend to agree with the first African-American justice on the highest court in the United States, the Supreme Court. His name was Thurgood Marshall. And he wrote, and I concur, that the American Constitution is deeply flawed, that the government that the framers, the founding fathers, devised was defective from the very beginning. It required several amendments, indeed a civil war and momentous social upheaval to attain the system of constitutional government and its respect for individual freedom and liberty that we hold fundamental today. Now, it's true that after the Constitution was framed, within four years, in 1791, it was altered, it was amended. And those amendments are known to us as the Bill of Rights. And those are the provisions that I'm going to be focusing on this evening. So, four years after the document was finalized and signed, the Bill of Rights come into being. Now, it, it did provide rights, but the Bill of Rights weren't for everyone. Women, for example, were second-class citizens, even under the Bill of Rights. They essentially remained the property of their husbands in America for 133 years after the Constitution was drafted. They were unable to vote until 1920, when the 19th Amendment, not an original Bill of Rights provision, the 19th Amendment was ratified. Native Americans were entirely outside the constitutional system. We define them as alien people in their very own land. We're the ones that came. They were there, remember? They weren't governed by ordinary American laws, but by federal treaties and federal statutes which stripped them of much of their land and most of their autonomy. And then blacks, Barack Obama, at the time the Constitution was framed, African Americans, it was well understood that there was a race exception to the Constitution. For the first 78 years, 78 years after the Constitution was framed, it protected slavery as an institution. It legalized racial subordination. Slaves weren't governed by the laws that governed white people. They were governed by special laws, slave codes. And indeed, our Supreme Court, in an infamous decision in 1856, wrote that at the time of the independence, that the at the time of the Declaration of Independence, blacks had no rights which the white man was bound to respect. 
Blacks couldn't vote until 1870. Okay. Well, back to my introductory premises. Premise. Now that we have a, a bit of a, I suppose, a, a setting for it. Um, I'm told I was doing research coming. Now you can correct me if this is wrong. I know that the part about American politicians is true. It's said of American politicians that they will do anything for money, and I think that's a fair statement. Now there was a corollary principle expressed with respect to English politicians, and I'm here to learn if it's true or not. The saying there is that English politicians will take your money, but they won't do anything. Americans will take the money and they'll do what they're told, but the English politicians, uh, that's uh, perhaps at a reception later we can talk about that. But I do know that in America, at least, politicians and diapers have one thing in common, that they should be changed fairly regularly and usually for the same reason. And we've had, in my estimation, in my humble judgment, eight years, we've been in need of a drastic diaper change in eight years. Okay. Now, George Bush and his voracious, I would say, executive power grab. Notwithstanding the fact that the Constitution was framed with three co-equal branches of government, the Congress, the legislative branch in other words, the judiciary, meaning the federal court system, and finally the executive branch. The executive branch has been on a tear in the past eight years and has amassed a laundry list of civil rights violations. George Bush has violated the constitutional rights of citizens and residents of the United States by detaining them without charges, depriving them of the right to a speedy and fair trial, denying them the right to the assistance of a lawyer, denying them the fundamental constitutional principle of habeas corpus, misusing the national security agency to spy on citizens in violation of the Fourth Amendment, our provision which protects our privacy rights in America against unreasonable searches and seizures. The Bush-Cheney administration, in my judgment, has run roughshod over civil liberties and has successfully attacked, among other precious rights, the right to peaceably assemble and speak against the government, the right to travel freely, the right to face one's own accuser. One by one, the Bush administration has undermined virtually all of the guarantees of the Constitution's Bill of Rights. And the damage done, in a summary fashion, well, we've managed to drag America now into two interminable wars, one in Afghanistan and another in Iraq. We subverted the Constitution. We have revoked several long-standing international treaties and run up amazingly, mind-bogglingly huge budget deficits along the path of violating America's basic rights of citizenship. Now James Madison, one of the framers of the Constitution, had in mind that the three branches of government would be separate when he said, the accumulation of all powers, legislative, executive, and judiciary in the same hands may justly be pronounced the very definition of tyranny. Now in the Bush administration we have a president who many believe never should have taken the office in the first place, who has, I think, usurped the powers of both branches of government. And he's done it, by the way, having been aided and abetted by the Congress, which failed to, to stop him, or the judiciary, which in many instances, though not all, failed, failed to speak out. Now, this most recent attack on the Bill of Rights in America is nothing new. Uh, precious civil liberties have throughout America's brief history come under attack frequently. 
There were alien and sedition acts and laws passed in 1798. During our Civil War, one of our most beloved presidents, Abraham Lincoln, suspended the writ of habeas corpus. During the 1919 and early 1920s, there were communist scares afoot in America. And the Attorney General at the time, a man named Mitchell Palmer, and his enthusiastic aide, J. Edgar Hoover, who would go on to lead our Federal Bureau of Investigation, rounded up, rounded up literally hundreds of radicals, subversives, Bolsheviks, in 33 different cities and summarily deported many of them. And then as we move to the 1940s, we have, of course, the internment of thousands of Japanese Americans on U.S. soil in the aftermath of the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, not because of any particular suspicion that any single one of them might be disloyal, but because they were Japanese and we were at war with Japan. Now, if history teaches us anything, I suppose it is that grave threats to civil liberty often comes in times of emergency or urgency when our constitutional rights seem perhaps a bit too extravagant to endure. To say, as George Bush has said, that we are now involved, America is now involved, and you folks as allies are involved in a war on terrorism is nothing new to America. American politicians love war. We haven't had a real war since before our conflict in Vietnam, that wasn't a genuine war in the constitutional sense, but in, in even before Vietnam and since then, politicians have declared any number of wars, all of which are still ongoing, none of which I think shows the government in the lead. In the 1930s, there was a war against alcohol, and prohibition was the experiment. I guess alcohol won that war because the pubs are open. I'm happy to report when I get back to Oklahoma, I will not have to leave the country. Maybe for a decent beer I would have to leave the country, but I could get a beer in Oklahoma. 1960s, President Johnson declared a war on poverty. Well, guess what? Poor people still abound in the United States. President Reagan declared war on drugs. I can find drugs in Oklahoma. The war is not over, or if it's over, the government has lost. And then Bush, of course, has declared war on terrorism, this amorphous, faceless enemy that will never be exterminated so that we will always be at war, so that he will always be our commander-in-chief. And in that role, as he has argued time and again, successfully in many instances, at the apex of his power, because he's the commander-in-chief. And if we're at war, if we're under attack, we need to rally behind our military leader. Well, the biggest Assault. The most obvious assault in the war against terrorism was the passage of the United States of America Patriot Act on October 26, 2001, just barely a month and a couple weeks after the September 11th terrorist uh, attacks in the country. Now, the House passed the 342 pages of legislation by a vote of 356 to 66, overwhelmingly voted in support of a document, most of them blithely admitted they didn't have the chance to read. Um, and it is literally a rattlesnake's nest of provisions with a labyrinth of cross-references that amend more than 50 different federal statutes, each of which dangerously reaches into rights which once upon a time were, were uh, respected, protected, and cherished by America. Now, as early as 1928, one of our Supreme Court justices, Louis Brandeis, in an opinion, wrote, ways may someday be developed 
by which the government, without removing papers from secret drawers, can reproduce them in court, and by which it will be enabled to expose to a jury the most intimate occurrences of the home. Well, that time, of course, has come to pass. The government now has access to bank records, credit card purchases, uh, what has been searched for on the Internet, and a great deal more data about each and every uh, person in America, at least, whether they have supported terrorism or not. And there are a couple of key features I just want to touch in passing. One is a uh, search engine known as Magic Lantern. Magic Lantern is a program which creates a record of every time you press a key on your computer, and it's all saved in plain text. So the agents can sneak into your house with permission, with a warrant, install this device, and every time you touch the computer, a record will be made. And then they can sneak back in and pick up whatever other papers or records might uh, be of interest to them. Those legal break-ins and the use of this Magic Lantern program are not, by the way, limited to investigations of terrorism. They're now part of regular criminal investigations. And moreover, a person whose house has been broken into, his, whose computer has been searched, whose records are now in the hands of the Federal Bureau of Investigation and the government, need not even be notified that an entry took place for 90 days. And if the government doesn't want to report that they broke into your house and searched and seized evidence within that 90 days, they can seek permission to delay it even further. Under the Patriot Act, also, um, a special court, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, uh, issues warrants. And among other provisions of the Patriot Act, the FBI is now empowered to seek FISA warrants, as they're called, to go to libraries and bookstores and find out what folks have been reading, whether the folks are suspected of terrorism or have some uh, relationship with terrorism at all. It is a standard far less than the constitutional requirement of probable cause. It's not even reasonable suspicion, the standard that's currently in use. The President also sought, though he was denied, and this is a rare instance in which Congress stood up, he wanted to institute a program called Operation TIPS, which would essentially deputize Americans, American truckers, delivery men, service workers, and other folks who might come to our ho home to install cable TV, to fix the plumbing, to do something around the house that you and I perhaps don't have the talent to do. Under Operation TIPS, these millions of folks would be essentially uh, government agents, and they would be encouraged to spy on what they saw when they were in the home and report back to the government, all in the name of national security. Now, in America, truth has become so bizarre in this area that it starts resembling some of the fiction you may have read. This power-to-demand library reading lists could have been taken from Ray Bradbury's book, Fahrenheit 451. The notion that immigrants could be deported without due process being provided. They could be rounded up into jails and dispatched, as happened during the Palmer Raids. And it happened again in the aftermath of the September 11th attacks. Maybe familiar to folks who have read Sinclair Lewis's It Can't Happen Here. Ultimately, though, Osama bin Laden and the terrorists cannot restrict our civil liberties. Only we can do that to ourselves. Al-Qaeda can't take away our freedoms, but we can do that to ourselves. 
The only way that the essential character of America will change is if we let it. And I'm afraid that we have lost ground in recent years and let things happen and failed to heed the warning of Benjamin Franklin, a true patriot, who said that they who can give up essential liberty to obtain a little temporary safety deserve neither liberty nor safety. And of course, that's why we're not insisting on the protection of our civil liberties in America, because we're afraid we have terrorism alerts, as you do. We're concerned that there'll be another attack on America and other innocent persons will die. But I think it's important to bear in mind that the framers of the Constitution were themselves warriors. There were men who had recently won the Revolutionary War, and they wrote the Constitution and then the Bill of Rights to protect individual liberties both during wartime and during peace. But essentially now the Patriot Act has made it easier for the government to gather information, whether terrorist-related or not. Another, a more covert attack on the Bill of Rights comes from the executive branch, the president's taking liberties via secret executive order. The president can issue what's called an executive order, and it has the force and effect of law. And President Bush has repeatedly issued executive orders. In 2005, the New York Times, after sitting on the story for over a year, reported that, at the, uh, that the National Security Agency, a super secret government agency, more secret than the FBI, more secret than our CIA or your MI5, is it? It's so secret that those who work in it say that the the acronym NSA stands for no such agency. It's not the National Security Agency. There is no such agency. But it's been spying on American citizens. Why? Because the president said we, they could do so. I was on a panel two weeks ago in Oklahoma with the general counsel of the CIA. And he denied torturing. He denied participating in torture of people, including people who were clients of mine. And how was he able to do that? Because the president, through executive order, has defined torture in such a way where you can do the things that we've done and not say it's torture. Or, even more noxiously in my judgment, America has this kind of a, what I call a Pontius Pilate effect. We can say that we don't torture, we don't dirty our hands by inflicting pain on someone in order to extract information. But we do engage in extra extraordinary rendition. An extraordinary rendition is when we take one of our allies and say, hey, America doesn't torture, but help us out here, and here's a suspect, and here's what we need to know, and you can get us that information, and we're not going to ask you how you got that information. And we've sent people who've sat and languished in secret CIA prisons where they were tortured and provided information. Is it information that you read about in the headlines that prevented the next terrorist attack? No, it is not. Why? Because although doubtless some of the people, some of the people at Guantanamo are dangerous. Sheikh Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, the architect of the September 11th attacks, a dangerous man in need of criminal prosecution. But he's not alone there. There are currently 255 people sitting at Guantanamo. And I dare say, if past his prologue, most of those people have done nothing wrong. Most of those people are people like my clients who will quietly be released the case of the United States Supreme Court, which first recognized that these folks that the president locked up on this spit of land in 
Cuba, Guantanamo Naval Base, and sought to detain without charges. In the first instance, the Supreme Court said they've got some rights. We're not sure what they are yet. We'll tell you as we go through the litigation, but they've got some rights. And again, the government was saying, these people are the worst of the worst. These are people who we've arrested on the battlefield, that if we have, did not take them into custody and not pry the Kalashnikov rifles out of their hands, that they would continue to kill American soldiers and our allies. But is that true? No, it's not true. If I could spend a moment trying to debunk this enemy combatant as terrorist myth, Now, lawyers who represent, as I have, clients who are particularly unpopular, living in Oklahoma, 25 miles from the site of the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995, and then later representing Timothy McVeigh, was a bit of a challenge on a number of levels. But most Americans, and I suppose most good-thinking folks in your country, believe that people who are accused of crime is entitled to competent representation. But I'm talking to educated people tonight and people that don't have the benefit of the education and training that you do are frequently unsupportive, if not hostile, if you step in and represent someone who, by the way, is accused of a crime, hasn't been convicted, no evidence has been presented in court yet. There's a tendency among some members of the public, I suppose, not very many, but among some, to equate the lawyers with the deeds that their clients are accused of committing. So. You're representing someone who's a pedophile, you must like to engage in sex with children. If you're representing a mass murderer or an accused mass murderer who ended the lives of 168 people, including 19 children in a daycare center, as Timothy McVeigh was proved beyond a reasonable doubt to have done, then you must be all for blowing up federal buildings and killing babies. Now, with respect to the Guantanamo detainees, these have been branded by the president and his administration as terrorists, al-Qaeda fighters, captured on the battlefield, or they've committed hostile acts against America or their allies. Now, on November 3rd, just before the election, the New York Times wrote a story that said that there are 255 people or thereabouts still being held at Guantanamo. Why or thereabouts? You think we, sh we should be able to count? Well, some of those folks, uh, are being detained secretly still. Sometime uh, ago, our former Secretary of Defense, Donald Rumsfeld, was asked to estimate the number of Iraqi insurgents that we were facing in our second war without end in Iraq. And in a moment of extreme candor, the Defense Secretary said, I'm not going to give you a number for it because it's not my business to do intelligent work. Fair enough. But the New York Times tells us there are 255 or thereabouts Guantanamo detainees, and it is their job to do intelligent work, and I believe that that number is about right. But these are the men that George Bush says is the worst of the worst. We know that's not true. He knew it wasn't true when he said it. In 2006, Seton Hall University School of Law did a study which put the lie to these bald assertions. Relying exclusively on the military's own conclusions and the military's own documents, completely disregarding anything any prisoner or prisoner's lawyer might say. The Seton Hall report revealed the following. 95% of the detainees were not captured on the battlefield. So if not captured on the battlefield, how do they 
come into U.S. custody and begin their interminable residence at the American Gulag? Well, through our leaflet program. How many of you are aware of the American leaflet program? Several of you are, yes. Simply speaking, while fighting in Afghanistan, we distributed leaflets. And typical leaflet shows a picture of a smiling Afghan who says on this leaflet, get wealth and power beyond your dreams. You can receive millions of dollars helping the anti-Taliban forces catch Al-Qaeda and Taliban murderers. This is enough money to take care of your family, your village, your tribe for the rest of your life. Pay for livestock and doctors and school books and housing for all your people. Bounties. American paid bounties. 86%, according to the Seton Hall report, 86% of those persons taken into custody at the time of the report, being held indefinitely in Guantanamo, were sold to American forces by people who received the leaflets. And were they careful who they turned in? No. Were the Americans careful who they received? No. That means, of course, that only 14% of those who were taken in were, in fact, found on the battlefield. 14%. Okay. The government's own records tell us that 92% of the detainees are not Al-Qaeda fighters. Only 8% of the detainees can be properly called Al-Qaeda fighters. Of the remaining 92%, 40% have no definitive connection with Al-Qaeda at all, have no definitive affiliation with either Al-Qaeda or the Taliban. 55% of the detainees, according to the government's own records, committed no hostile act against the United States, its allies, or anyone else. And this is true, even though the expression hostile act has been given the broadest possible definition. Fleeing from the bombing of American forces it's a hostile act. If American bombs and you run, you're not cooperating. You're being hostile. Stop it. Being sold to American troops is a hostile act. And even though in 2001, Afghanistan was estimated to contain roughly $8 million adult males and 10 million Kalashnikov rifles, the evidence against 39% of the detainees rested at least in part upon possession of this omnipresent Kalishnikov rifle. Well, what of my former clients? I mentioned earlier Rasul, Bush, um, um, Rasul versus Bush, the case in which um, the Supreme Court first had occasion to talk about whether or not these people had any rights or was indeed Guantanamo a law-free zone, a black hole, a twilight zone where the Constitution did not apply. In Rasul versus Bush, the Supreme Court said that Shafiq Razul, a British citizen, had rights. That even though the government said he was the worst, with, worst of the worst, that he'd been on the battlefield, that he was killing Americans, that he would kill again, that he had rights. But where was Mr. Rasul when the Supreme Court ruled in his favor? This man, this worst of, this, of the worst, this British citizen, had already been freed three months prior to the ruling in his case. He was quietly released from U.S. custody. What about my clients? My former client, Abdanar Samur, was he the worst of the worst? Someone who, if released, would, according to Donald Rumsfeld, the defense secretary, return to the battlefield and kill again, conduct more terrorist acts? Now, Mr. Samur was arrested in the mountains between Afghanistan and Pakistan while in the company of other Arabs, and he was shot in the leg.
while he was taken into custody. He admitted having prior knowledge of the September 11, 2001 terrorist attacks, although he later explained that his confession was extorted from him because his American captors refused to treat his leg injury until he confessed. And rather than have his, reg, his leg amputated, he told the authorities what they wanted to hear. Well, if it were true, if that confession were at all true, do you suppose he would have been released to this country last Christmas, shortly before last Christmas? I think it's safe to assume that Mr. Samore, who was reunited with his family in England last November, I think, is not now and never has been anything resembling a terrorist. My other client, Amanullah Tuk, the Afghan man, well-educated in economics, rounded up with other Afghans in Iran after the United States began bombing Afghanistan. Remember, running from United States bombs, it's a hostile act. He was swept up in Iran largely because he didn't have appropriate documentation. He spent a month in an Iranian prison and then he was transferred to a place, probably a CIA site, which he described as underground, a dark prison, run though primarily by Afghans. He was interrogated by Americans at that facility. Next he was sent to Bagram Air Base and then finally to Guantanamo where he spent five years before being transferred just before Christmas last year to Polacharki Prison in Afghanistan. No charges were ever filed against Mr. Tuke and he too was eventually released. Mr. Samore and Mr. Took are far from uncommon. Are there people at Guantanamo who need to be tried, who deserve to be punished, who are in fact guilty of awful actions? Yes, I believe that there are. I believe with respect to some of the detainees, the government is on the right track. And if the government proceeds with trials, that we'll, we will learn more about what those men and women did. But what you're not learning about, what you're not hearing about, are the hundreds of people who have been released. Last year, the Defense Department said that since 2002, 390 detainees had been released or transferred from Guantanamo. There are only 255 or so remaining there today. 390 people whose lives have been damaged, perhaps irreparably, who've been tortured, who've been plucked in the middle of the night in some instances from their families. 390 without charges. Well, one of, one of them you did hear about was perhaps Yasser Hamdi. Yasser Hamdi was born in Louisiana. He was a 22-year-old man. He was born of Saudi parents. He was captured in November 2001 by Northern Alliance forces in Afghanistan, along with hundreds of other Taliban fighters who were surrendering. Hamdi was rounded up and sent to a prison complex near Mazari Sharif. He was among about 600 prisoners who then engaged in a riot, including a fellow American prisoner named John Walker Lind. During the riot, hand grenades had been smuggled into the prison and they were detonated. Northern Alliance prison guards were attacked, weapons were seized, and during the riot, an American died. A CIA operative who had been interviewing the prisoners died and became the America's the American, the first American combat fatality of that particular invasion. So the United States and allies laid down a heavy barrage of gunfire and rockets and order was eventually restored.
50 Northern Alliance soldiers were killed. 500 Taliban prisoners were killed during the riot. Hamdi was captured eventually after being loose for almost a week, I think, and then he was sent to Guantanamo. When they realized that Hamdi was an American citizen, he was born in the state of Louisiana. Louisiana. He was taken to a naval station brig in Norfolk, Virginia, put on a floating ship, a jail on a ship, where he was held without charges, held without trial, held without access to a lawyer, was prevented from seeing his family, from contacting anyone else. His conditions of confinement were so severe that by 2002, memos written by military officers expressed concern that the isolation, sensory deprivation, and lack of stimuli were driving Hamdi insane. The government's position, though, was clear. The president has complete discretion to suspend the application of the Bill of Rights and the writ of habeas corpus. That was the position they took in the federal court because the American citizen was able to get a lawyer to file a habeas petition for him. And a hearing was held. And the hearing was held, but Hamdi was not invited to be present. The hearing was before a conservative judge, a 71-year-old Reagan appointee, very conservative, but a man who was passionate about assuring due process, fairness under the Constitution. And that judge said in open court, this case appears to be the first in American jurisprudence where an American citizen has been held incommunicado and subjected to an indefinite detention in the continental United States without charges and without access to a lawyer. And the judge ordered that he be released. That single federal judge, that single conservative federal judge ordered that he be released. But the government appealed, and the Court of Appeals said no. And then that, that decision was a decision of three judges of that court. They sit in panels of three. And then for really important cases, they decide whether they should all decide. And they decided to all decide this case. And they sat on banc, meaning as a complete court. And they again said no. This time they said, hell no. And not until the Supreme Court rendered its decision was it possible for for uh, Mr. Hamdi to um, get some resolution, or at least some charges. Now, in recent news, um, I've been led to believe that there's been some debate in this country recently about that power to detain. And Britain currently has a statute, the Terrorism Act of 2006, which allows detention without charge for 28 days. When Tony Blair was prime minister, as I understand it, he sought permission to extend, extend that a period of uncharged detention for 90 days. He's since been replaced, and your current Prime Minister Gordon Brown, I believe, is in favor of a recent initiative to take the 28-day without detention period and perhaps not move it to 90 days. That's the battle that Tony Blair lost, but maybe a compromise of 42 days. You need to be alert. There's a saying in the American Civil Liberties Union that eternal vigilance is the price of freedom, the price of liberty that you have to watch. And if the government thinks 28 days without charges is good, then 42 days is better. And if 42 days is good, then 90 days is better. If your experience is anything like the American experience, 
you have to stand up and you have to say no and you have to impose some limits before it's too late. There's a creeping incrementalism. And it's obvious to me at least that my government has developed an insatiable appetite for more power. So think about this. This man was stripped of his constitutional rights based, by the way, on a two-page document written by a government bureaucrat, which the trial court thought was just ludicrous. And then the trial judge asked Hamdi's captors, well, why are, you, why are you holding him? Why do you continue to hold him? What, what do you, why not charge him? Well, we need to interrogate him. Well, how long does that take, the judge wanted to know? How long does it take to question a man? A year? Two years? Ten years? A lifetime? How long? And the response he got was this. The president's detention is lawful. It's not an answer to the question. So, the judge asked, the Constitution does not apply to Mr. Hamdi. Again, the president's detention of Mr. Hamdi is lawful. Two and a half years after he was held, he was finally introduced to his lawyer. And then the government said that his intelligence value had been exhausted. He was no longer a threat to vital national security. Well, the Supreme Court ruled that the government could not detain an American citizen without charges, indefinitely, without bringing him to trial. And so the government then struck a deal. In exchange for renouncing his American citizenship, the government sent him to Saudi Arabia, the home of his parents. He was born in Louisiana. His parents were from Saudi Arabia. And the choice was a grim one. Remain in prison indefinitely without charges in a military brig off the coast of Virginia or renounce your citizenship and be deported to the country of your parents. And he chose freedom. I can't say that I would have made a different choice. Now, the silver lining on this cloud for what must have been an ordeal for Mr. Hamdi, I suppose, but something which troubles me a little bit and raises serious questions about the government's assertion, again, that Hamdi was the worst of the worst, that he had captured on the battlefield and would kill Americans if not detained. Part of his plea agreement um, ensures that in a decade, in 10 years' time, Mr. Hamdi may return to the United States with his family to visit Disneyland. You don't get many Disneyland provisions in your plea agreements from the federal government. Must have had a very good lawyer. So if he behaves himself for 10 years, he may actually meet Mickey Mouse. That's got to be heartening news for him. Okay, what about the American policy of torture? Abu Ghraib, you all recall the photographs of American soldiers treating Iraqi prisoners as less than human. Photographs showed naked prisoners, leash-like dogs, being taunted by female guards, being made to wear female lingerie, piled up naked one on top of another in simulated sexual positions, set upon by German shepherds or connected to electrical wires, which they'd been told would electrocute them if they moved. And that word led to believe is just a couple bad soldiers. That's not a function of our policy. That has nothing to do with the government's 
policy on treating people humanely. I heard my president say time and time again, America does not torture. And yet here's what the Gonzalez memo written um, by an assistant of the Attorney General for the President said regarding torture. For an act to constitute torture, it must inflict pain that is difficult to endure. Physical pain amounting to torture must be equivalent in intensity to the pain accompanying severe physical injury, such as organ failure, impairment of bodily function, or death. So, we know that there was an investigation to the abuses of Guantanamo. We know that there are position papers of the Bush administration. We know that a man named John Yu sits tonight on the campus of the University of California at Berkeley and teaches law, and that he and others were the architects of these memos saying that we don't torture. And here's how we define torture. Unless it's the pain associated with imminent death or organ failure, it's not torture. It's not torture. Well, John McCain, the candidate who opposed Barack Obama, seeking to replace George Bush, and himself a torture victim, tortured by his Vietnamese captors, put forward a bill that would ban torture outright, whether by the military or by the CIA. And that bill became the law in January of 2006. But when the president signed it, he also signed what he likes to sign when he signs things into law. He signed an executive signing statement stating that he would not be bound by the provisions of the bill in his role as commander-in-chief or the chief executive. Essentially, he gets to say what the law means. He's going to sign it into law, and it becomes a law of the land, but he's commander-in-chief, and the laws don't apply to him. It's like in the movie My Cousin Vinny, the laws of physics ceased to apply in the kitchen when the old lady was making grits. The president's above the law. Does that remind any of you who know anything about English history of another man named George some years ago? We have our own George problem. It's getting better though. We're told it's getting better. There's some reason for hope. Let me tell you just a little bit about working for these Guantanamo folks and then I will open it up to questions. Uh, to give you a sense of what you have to go through if you want to represent some of these Guantanamo prisoners. Um, everyone has to apply for and obtain a security clearance. Before you can meet with your client at Guantanamo, you've got to go through the Department of Justice or the Defense Department and go through the application process. You fill out a government form, you provide sensitive personal information. The general standard rule was you have to go back seven years. With Guantanamo, they've extended that period, and now you're required to report on everything for the past decade. Um, you submit, as you might expect, fingerprint cards. You sign an authorization which empowers the government to pry into every aspect of your life. They can look and talk to credit bureaus, employers, schools, uh, criminal justice agencies, collection agencies, retail businesses, any source of information. They can gather whatever they like about you. You also have to release your medical information. And you're required to permit the IRS to reveal confidential information about you in their possession for purposes of this background check. And then, if that checks out, then you get an interview with an FBI agent, and you sign a non-disclosure agreement. And if your security clearance is granted, then you go through a government briefing, and then, and only then, do you get to visit your client at Guantanamo, unless, 
unless your client, as in the case of my uh, client, Mr. Gailani, has been designated a high-value detainee. And then your security clearance is not enough, and you must seek a higher security clearance called a top-secret security clearance. You have to become a member of a civilian military commission pool of lawyers, and at the same time, get this enhanced security clearance. And it takes time. It takes a long time. I've applied for my top secret security clearance back in June of this summer, and it hasn't arrived yet. So I'm able to work on behalf of my client, and I'm able to write letters to my client that co-counsel, military counsel that has their security clearance can bring to him and read to him, though he cannot keep them, but I'm unable to visit this client unless and until that security clearance is granted. And I'm told now that my client is interested in firing me and another private lawyer, this one from a Washington, D.C. law firm. Why? Because we haven't come out to see him. And he's absolutely right. We have not come out to see him. We cannot go out to see him. We are not welcome. Every word he utters is presumed to be of national security value. So the lawyers who have their secret clearances, namely the military lawyers, and therefore have access to this man, can't even tell us what the man said he had for dinner. But if I did get my security clearance, and I wished to have a conversation about what our client had for dinner, the rules require that that conversation take place in a secure facility. I can't dial him up on the phone, speak on the cell phone, talk on a landline, text message, I am, or email him. I've got to physically fly from Oklahoma to the suburbs of Washington, D.C., enter a building known as a secure site or a secure facility, and then that other lawyer has to go to that same building, and in one of those rooms, we can talk. It's like this zone of silence. It's like the get smart cone of silence. Those of you that may have seen that movie, it's just a surreal notion. You can't have the conversations outside the perimeters of these walls. And guess who runs that facility? The government. And they're on the other side of the case. If I want to write a document to file on the case that contains secure information, I've got to fly to this secure facility. I've got to use the government's computer. They'll let me bring a thumb drive, and I can keep the thumb drive there under lock and key. But I can't take any papers out. I can't file the document from there. What I have to do is send it to another government lawyer in the court security office. It's called, and this government lawyer, not this government lawyer who's directly opposing me in this effort, but this government lawyer, then reviews the document and decides whether it's in good enough form to be filed. And if so, then he'll file it. Likewise, when you visit clients at Guantanamo, you can't take your notes. You can take notes of your meetings with your client, but before you can get access to those notes, they have to be cleared by a government lawyer. Whatever happened to the attorney-client privilege, the notion that what the lawyer tells me is confidential. So now I have to tell my client at Guantanamo, and any lawyer would have to tell their client, everything you tell me is confidential, except if I write it down, and if I wish to have that piece of paper back, it's going to be read by a member of the government who will decide whether or not there's anything in that document which is jeopardizing national security. Even the most mundane pleadings have to be sent for clearance by this court security officer. But heaven help you if you want to use classified documents, your headaches only increase. They increase exponentially.
Okay, I want to save some time for questions, but I, I just want to end the remarks uh, with a, I, I think, a ray of hope. Now, with the election last um, Tuesday of Barack Obama to the office of President of the United States, I don't know if he's going to be a great president. I don't know if he's going to follow through on his promise to close Guantanamo. I don't know if John McCain would have closed Guantanamo. I do know that Barack Obama is not George Bush, and we're likely to see some changes, and I hope they're changes for the better. But there is a sense in America that I saw the week before, after the election, the week, just the past week before I came here, a spirit of hope spreading throughout the country. And I see it in particular in my students and in my African-American students who are walking as if they're on air. I mean, I'll confess, I voted for Barack Obama, and I wanted him to win. But before Barack Obama, I supported Hillary Clinton. And when she lost to Barack Obama, I supported Barack Obama. And I was happy that he won, and I'm very happy that he won. But it's a different, it's a physical change in African-American law students. They've got an African-American man in the White House. It's extraordinary. I watched a discussion after the election between two African-Americans, and the first one said, and I'm not sure what this means, but the first one said, bitch is the new black. I've heard pink is the new black, black is the new pink. Bitch is the new black. And the other African-American said, black is the new president, bitch. <laughs> now, I think I understood. I think I understood what that person meant. I still can't wrap my mind around the first. But let me quote then from a different African-American, this one who wrote these words, a poet, an American poet in 1928. And these are words of hope that, although written 80 years ago, inspire me, and then I'll be happy to answer your question. This is from Let America Be America Again. Let America be America again. Let it be the dream it used to be. Let it be the pioneer on the plain, seeking a home where he himself is free. America never was America to me. Let America be the dream that dreamers dreamed. Let it be that great, strong land of love, where never kings connive nor tyrants scheme that any man be crushed by one above. It was never America to me. Oh, let my land be a land of liberty, crowned with no false patriotic wreath, but opportunity is real and life is free. Equality is in the air we breathe. There's never been equality for me, nor freedom in this homeland of the free. Oh yes, I say it plain, America never was America to me, and yet I swear this oath, America will be. I certainly hope so. I'll be happy to answer any questions that you have. Assurances and how they seem to have been 
corrupted more than normal uh, in turning people back who are then tortured. Um, coming from my own experiences as a Canadian, I'm sure you're aware that we've had sort of really bad circumstances with that. I've been told that the possibility is that uh, using them in the circumstances of the so-called terrorism may have come out of the UK, and I've been trying to do some research on that. Professor, my name is Mpopale. I come from Kenya, and uh, uh, in August of 2006, Mr. Obama came to Kenya, and he said he was coming to visit his grandmother. So we invited him at the University of Nairobi, and on 28th of August, he delivered there a speech, a lecture just like the one you delivered. And I remember asking two questions. One was whether he supports reparation for blacks for slavery, and two, whether uh, it can justify the rejection by the United States of the ICC treaty. He scattered the questions, he did not answer them. But I have a question for you uh, on this terrorism and, uh, and the one on terror and um, Guantanamo. You have represented those clients, very high profile people and who are known to be dangerous. And you know Khalid Sheikh Mohammed is there, Ramzi bin al-Shib is there, and many others. These are people who have been denied their rights, we agree. But they are reasonably suspected of having committed terror. What, according to you, is their option for reparation or restitution? Now that they have not been charged, suppose they are ever charged, can they sue the United States, say, for compensation? Now that we see and know that their possibility of release is almost nil. Okay, let's start uh, perhaps in the order in which the questions were raised. Uh, diplomatic assurances you're referring to, uh, is it Mayor Arar, the Canadian citizen? Yes, but there Among are some others. others. He was, uh, the one that I'm aware of was sent by the CIA uh, to Jordan, where he was badly beaten. Um, then he was sent to Syria, where he was tortured for about 10 months. And, held in a grave-like cell 
and he was released only after the government of Canada intervened. He was never charged with any crime. You may be more familiar with a German national, El Masri, who had a good deal of publicity as well. He was sent to Afghanistan's Bagram Air Base, beaten severely, anally sodomized, and was discovered to be a case of mistaken identity. That raises issues that are part of the question that I think is raised as well. What do we do when we get it wrong, as we sometimes do? But here, if I understand your question correctly, what about diplomatic assurances? Representative, another government telling us that we will receive this person, we will treat the person humanely, and we will act in good faith, and then we will return him to you. Is that what you're referring to in those extraordinary renditions? I think it's nonsense. I think that we send people into the custody of people that have a tendency to torture them because we don't want a trail of torture with our fingerprints on it. And I think we know damn well when we hand over people to governments of this type, we have intelligence agents throughout the world, we know what to expect. But we're happy to be able to feign surprise, and we are shocked, just shocked, like a character in Casablanca, shocking to find gambling at this particular casino. And it is a naivety that the American can no longer endure. I think that blood is on our hands. I think our fingerprints are all over it. Why would we turn over someone to someone else and then take them back unless we thought that they were going to get information that we couldn't get through means that we'd rather not publicly use or directly use? And I think we're every bit as liable when we hand them over as if we had sodomized them ourselves, if we had buried them alive in a grave ourselves, if we had waterboarded ourselves. I don't think you can avoid responsibility through diplomatic assurance. That's my sense. The second question, raised expectations from the MP. Power once acquired, it's very hard to give it up, isn't it? I mean, we've got 28 days here, and we didn't get 90, but maybe 42. We don't, ma'am, we don't go backwards, do we? That's why Benjamin Franklin was so adamant. You don't deserve freedom. You don't deserve liberty if you're willing to give it up for a little temporary safety. But we can restore certain things. We can. I would encourage whoever was elected president of the United States to close down Guantanamo and to do it today or to do it as soon as you take office. That's the earliest available opportunity. But plan that now. And then an executive order during the first 10 days of office saying it is emphatically the United States' position not to torture, not to extraordinarily render, not to deal with nations who do. Then think about whether or not these folks can be brought to justice through our ordinary criminal processes, which, by the way, are tried and true and have gathered the respect of the world. People aren't complaining about Timothy McVeigh's trial, saying that it was unfair. You may believe that there were other people involved, and you may be right. But he got a boatload of due process and millions of dollars worth of lawyers to protect his interests. And did the government spend more? Yes. Did the government win? Yes. Well, sometimes the government should win. Sometimes the government is right. And I support my government when it's right. But when I fight for the Bill of Rights, when all these folks who are involved in pro bono do their work for free, yes, it's for the individual. Yes, it's to help another human being. But it's really for the constitutional principle more than anything else. My clients are oftentimes people 
that I really don't want to have a cup of tea with, that I wouldn't spend much time with unless I were locked into a cell with them, having been appointed to represent them. But I do like the Bill of Rights, and I do like freedom from oppression, unreasonable searches and seizures, and I do value my privacy. And these poor, wretched individuals who are facing extermination by the state provide remarkable, uplifting vehicles through which those battles can be fought, through which those battles must be fought. Repatriation for blacks, I don't know anything about Obama's uh, policy in that area. I really don't. Or the question with respect to the ICC treaty, I'll just have to plead the ignorance that I possess on those topics. With respect to those who are held at Guantanamo unlawfully, can they bring lawsuits? Well, in ordinary capital cases in the United States, and I suspect here, if you're wrongfully convicted, you can bring a lawsuit and you can seek money damages. I was talking to a fellow lawyer, another amicus lawyer from the state of Louisiana. He tells me that they have a statute in Louisiana that for every year of your life you've suffered a wrongful conviction. And he was talking about death penalty cases. You can get uh, $10,000. So he's got a client who spent 13 years waiting execution for a crime he didn't commit in Louisiana. And Louisiana's going to write him a check for $13,000. Sounds like a lot of money. Pretty good deal, right? More money than that person might make in five or ten years of freedom. But you know, try locking yourself in the smallest bathroom in your house for spend a couple days in there, two days, and see if you don't begin to value your freedom. The possibility of lawsuits in connection with the Guantanamo, even harder. There are no statutes in place that allow for restitution. And even where there are statutes, you have to show a deliberate, bad faith decision by the government to lie, to steal, to take away your liberty when it knew better. Because government officials, and they deserve this, and it's an important protection for all of us, have immunity if they're acting within the scope of their employment, even though they may make unwise decisions, as long as they can't be demonstrated to have acted purposefully, maliciously, knowing that someone's innocent and yet still trying to kill them. And those things are very difficult to prove. A government, government prosecutor can, in good faith, seek to kill someone else, and can, and often, not often, more often than you'd like to admit, more often than most Americans have, is, can be wrong. And they can get the wrong person. But getting money from it, very hard to do. Because it has to, there has to be the will, then, of the prosecutor to prosecute the prosecutors, and the judges to pass judgment on those prosecutors. And guess where most of our prosecutors, or excuse me, most of our judges come from in the United States? They're former prosecutors. That's the fast track to become a judge. You don't become a defense lawyer. You become a prosecutor. And that seems to be what works, works the best. We have time for a few more. Any, any,
crime scene photograph showed me that someone had done that. I didn't know if Fred had done it or not. But looking at the transcript of the written words of his trial, I quickly developed the opinion that if I had been on trial, this white, college-educated, privileged guy had been on trial, I don't think I would have necessarily been found guilty. But even if I were found guilty, I sure as heck would have avoided a death sentence. So I started thinking, this can't be fair. I don't know if he did it or not, but I think he got a bad deal because of who he is and what he was, a Hispanic man who lost two brothers to murder, who lost a daughter to common diarrhea. She died of dehydration after they moved from Mexico to the United States. One of his brothers interrupted at home, in bed with the wrong woman. Her boyfriend comes in and stabs him to death. He's trying to get through his pants where his knife is. He never makes it. His other brother, in some crowd across the scene from some party, some frat party in Texas, West Texas, and someone shoots into the crowd. And this guy, who's really in the wrong place at the wrong time, stumbles, crawls up to the house next door and bleeds out on the front steps. And Fred, little 10-year-old Fred, my future client, after learning that his brother had been shot, goes to that house, takes out that garden hose, and washes his brother's blood off of the steps. He was destined for crime. He was a great candidate for death row. But he didn't do it. And I got the sense that whether he did it, I don't know. He didn't know until he got released in 1993, after nine years on death row. And then I knew. And then I knew. And the guy who did it is the guy who testified against him. The guy who was positively identified as being at the scene of the crime because the car he was driving was father's vehicle. Someone wrote down the license plate number, the tag number. He was the guy that all the evidence that had been stolen from the murdered couple's home, it was dug out of his backyard. But he was the prosecutor's chief witness. He said he didn't do it. He said Fred went in by himself and robbed this couple. He just waited in the car. And then he said, okay, you tell that story at his trial, and we won't even charge you with anything. And his cellmate comes forward and says, oh, he's lying. He told me he killed the old lady. So they get the guy's name is Pedro. Pedro takes the lie detector test. Did you kill the old lady? No, I didn't kill no old lady. Flunks. They withdraw the deal. New deal, Pedro. You testify against Fred, and we're going to charge you with burglary, but we're not going to charge you with that homicide of Mrs. Haynes. That's the deal he got. He testified against Fred. And he got out of prison long before Fred did. He did this short period of prison for the burglary, but was never charged with the murders. He's likely the murderer, but he's the prosecutor's star witness. They knew or had reason to believe that he killed at least one of those two people, and he had every incentive to lie. And I thought that was wrong. And I've got a government that can't, from year to year, take enough money out of my paycheck so that at the end of the year, I don't have to give them still more money. They can't make the most basic decisions. I'm not saying that I could do that. I can't balance my checkbook. But this is a government that wants the awesome power to kill? Let God sort it out. I also, for a variety of reasons, another reason is with the death penalty. I think murderers should be punished. I really do. I don't want them. I've got two daughters. I don't want murderers on the street. But I've been in prison, and I know what it's prison like. And I haven't spent the night there. But I know that prisons are harsh places. In my own personal beliefs, I grew up Catholic. According to my childhood faith of Catholicism, when Timothy McVeigh confessed just before being poisoned to death by the federal government, he may have been absolved of his sins. He may be in heaven now. 
You don't get the virgins under Catholicism that you get under some, some other faiths, but you can wipe the slate clean. In my judgment, Timothy McVeigh's guilty of killing 168 people. He didn't suffer long enough. I really think that. And I cared for Timothy McVeigh. And I was sorry and I cried when he was put to death. But I think murderers deserve to be punished. And I'm not sure death is enough punishment. We have an increasing number of prisoners saying, I don't want to be in prison anymore. Kill me. They're called volunteers. They give up their appeals. They've had enough of the psychological torture, of the roller coaster. I'm going to kill you this week. Nope, not going to stay of execution. Finally, they said, enough. And they seized control over their lives. Now, it's different in other cultures. In Japan, I think it is. You never know when your execution day is going to be. But you know that you're going to be selected sometime during the day when the priest visits. Every time the priest comes on Japan's death row and starts nosing about, things are pretty tense. But then when the priest leaves and he hasn't tapped you on the shoulder, it's a good day. You'll wake up tomorrow. Now, the priest may come for you tomorrow, but at least it's not today. I don't know if that's more humane or not. But variety of reasons. And the money, my God, the money we spend on death penalty lawyers. Because we're spending the same money sheltering these people, keeping them alive. And it's a great myth. It's a great myth. Most Americans, I believe, why the hell should we have to feed these people and shelter them for the rest of their lives? Why should I, you know, I don't get room service. I've got to work for my job. Well, the, the reality is it's more expensive to kill them. So if you really try to be fiscally conservative, you want to protect your financial resources, get life without the possibility of parole. It's much cheaper. It is much cheaper because of the nature of capital trials, super due process. We prefer not to kill people until we're very, very, very sure that they're guilty of something. Preferably within the charge of convicting them. Sir, back there? I think we'll make, we'll make this the last one. Okay. Looking at it, sir. Yeah, just keep fairly brief. It's a good
is necessarily a, a, a friend of the death penalty, but he's not an enemy of the death penalty either. But I do agree entirely that the two military lawyers with whom I've worked on behalf of my high-value detaining client have been first-rate excellent lawyers. I'd be happy to have them represent me. I'd like to again thank you very much for coming over there.